Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. This last year has been a drought for movie lovers, by most standards. But if you're looking for silver linings, you could do worse than noting that there's a fresh edition of the New Director's New Films Festival, happening a mere four months after the 2020 edition. This year is extra special. It returns the festival to theaters alongside virtual screenings, and it also marks the 50th anniversary of New Director's New Films. It's a nice reminder that despite all the doomsaying, cinema's future remains as vibrant as its past. To preview the lineup, we brought in critics Vadim Rizov and Chloe Lizot, both veterans of our 2020 New Director's Talk, for a live taping of the podcast. We discussed Amalia Ullman's El Planeta, James Vaughn's Friends and Strangers, Fern Silva's Rock Bottom Riser, Salome Joshi's Taming the Garden, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today we have with us, well, we have Clint, who you already met, and we have two special guests who I'll ask to introduce themselves. Uh, Vadim, why don't you go? Hi, I'm Vadim Rizov. I'm the Director of Editorial Operations at Filmmaker Magazine, and I'm... uh, I mean, Chloe, we already did this once before for the last edition of New Directors New Films, so it's fun to do this again. Um, agreed. Uh, I'm Chloe Lazat. I'm a contributing editor at Cinema Club and also a contributor to Reverse Shot, Screen Slate, uh, Cinemascope, Film Comment, etc. And uh, yeah, thanks for inviting us back. It's a lot of fun to come on uh, for New Directors New Films, although it's rare that we have one four months after the other, but can't complain. <laughs> Yeah, we thought it would do be kind of like a, you know, reloaded version just to see, see if you guys were up for it again. <laughs> I like yeah, it. I mean, it's 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 uh, again, like if if you're not a an FLC talk completionist, uh, we did have these people <laughs> on in December when we had last year's rescheduled new directors, new films. And, you know, that was because the original festival was kind of pushed by the pandemic. So it is a an unusual circumstance to see like uh, a whole new crop of new directors just four months uh, after the last one. And um, the production I don't know. cycles and are also, just getting really tight, I guess. And also, this is the 50th anniversary of New Directors New Films, which is kind of a big deal. And that's also why we wanted to do this uh, live virtual format. It just is, uh, you know, it's been 50 years uh, of New Directors New Films. There's a special retrospective also that FLC is doing, looking back at some of the notable films that have played in the series, uh, which are all free on FLC's virtual cinema. So I'll just... Uh, push that and maybe we'll we'll talk about a couple films later but let's jump into this year's lineup I know that there was one film that everyone was excited to talk about which is the opening night film El Planeta Clint uh, do the honors yeah this is a Spanish film and uh, directed by Amalia Ullman who I believe also stars and it also stars her a uh, real mother and it's kind of a uh, com it's a comedy about a mother and daughter who are kind of completely approaching total destitution and we're kind of watching this unfold um and they live in Asturias in the north of Spain in a small town i think called Gij- or in a city 
small, a medium-sized city named Gijon. And um, the movie doesn't really have a plot so much as it just follows this young woman kind of through her daily life as she kind of, and the mother to a certain extent as well, as they kind of just try to figure out how to stave off um, the recognition of their uh, encroaching poverty. And it's kind of mm. why this is happening to them is never made ex- totally clear, but there's some hints that maybe they're the victims of a, of a fraud in some way, or um, their father, the father who recently passed away is alluded to several times. And maybe he has like accrued incredible amounts of debt that now the mother and the daughter are um, on the, on the, on the hook for. So um, yeah, I, I found this movie to be, uh, really kind of low key and funny while watching it. And then kind of after it ended, I found it, I kind of felt like um, it kind of stuck with me in a way. There was this undercurrent of pathos or maybe just like brutality, the brutality of, of, uh, you know, capitalism and life that these two women were just kind of trying to navigate. But I know that uh, Vadim and Chloe, you both had some some thoughts about this one. And Chloe, do you want to? Sure. Um, I mean, I think what you were kind of saying about um, just sort of like uh, kind of that raw feeling it left you with is really, um, really apt. But it's interesting. Um, it's shot in this kind of beautiful black and white. And um, mm-hmm. it sort of lingers and kind of moments that like aren't really like highlight moments, but just kind of everyday moments um, and kind of like there's this sort of like feeling of purgatory in the city. Like um, Amalia Ullman is like very young, but she's walking through this town. That's like mostly old people. All of the shops are like shuttered or closed in the financial crisis. It's like that, that kind right. of backdrop. The, I think there. it takes place in the aftermath of like the, of yeah. the financial crisis. The Euro. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, and there's this kind of like, there's also like, um, she's a fashion student who's had to kind of um, pause her studies because of um, all that's happening with her mother and kind of this past with her her father that you were talking about. And um, she uh, like has the opportunity to kind of like find work um, in her field with a fashion editor that she has to um, like Skype with by picking up their neighbor's Wi-Fi signal because they're kind of like, these are like kind of the last days of like uh, their apartment. They're trying to sort of keep up appearances as you were saying but you know they don't have wi-fi so they need to pick it up from the neighbor and she's like uh cramming herself with her laptop into the corner of her living room and frantically trying to like arrange a backdrop and meanwhile she has this call and it comes out that like they're not going to cover an international flight for her to like set dress a cover shoot for christina aguilera in new york even though they're offering it to her and like she won't get paid for it but it'll be exposure and it's just kind of like she has to like mask uh her reactions to all of this into kind of this very deadpan like oh that sounds nice kind of knowing full well she can't afford to do it and like uh yeah i don't know i think she um as a filmmaker has a really like uh i don't know i mean not i don't know if deadpan is the right word but a low-key like way of capturing that kind of like very contemporary disappointment that i really liked yeah even i think more so than deadpan it's that the it, it i think it's more related to keeping up appearances or you know always being cheery i mean it makes me think of yeah the kind of you know the uh capitalist like 
motto or not motto, but like the expectation pose imposed on like service workers and just generally people who work, uh, you know, thankless jobs in this world that you just kind of smile and you swallow it and you keep going and you just keep grinding till you get somewhere. And she really is, you know, kind of is able to convey the emotional toll of that and also like create a kind of parody of it that felt very realistic. But it's also the case that they're not grinding. Like they're not actually trying to like make any money, the mother or the daughter. Like that's it's and that's kind of where some of the comedy comes up. I mean, I think um, I I saw this during Sundance. So it's been, you know, uh, it's been a couple of months and I wasn't instantly as sold as I think a lot of people were. And there were some aspects of it that felt twee to me and that felt a bit, you know, affected. Even that scene when she's Skyping with that editor and there's, you know, it just felt like a kind of obvious parody of a certain kind of fat New York fashion, you know, snob and, and, a- a, you know, parody of like certain kinds of exchanges that take place in, in the media industry. But I think some, something did eventually stick with me and which is that that sense of affectation that the movie has feels reflective of what the characters are doing, right? Like they are, the whole movie is about them putting on an affectation to kind of not really come to terms with the fact that they are poor and or like are in this crisis. So there, I think there is some real sense of tragedy to that performance that was moving by the end to me. Um, Vadim, what, what were your thoughts? I, th- I think it's funny because the way that y'all are talking about is um, emphasizes the very real dramatic economic peril, et cetera. But like, I mostly thought the movie was funny. Like it wasn't a terribly sophisticated kind of reaction. Um, Chloe, you mentioned the black and white. There's an interview with, I want to say the DP on our site where, you know, part of the reasoning is explained, which is that like they didn't have a lot of money, right? So it's an impoverished movie about poverty. And if you don't have a lot of money, it's easier to make things look good in black and white. Like there is the stated goal of having things look good. Like uh, Gorilla's talked about this for like making a movie in color cuts double because you got to paint the walls and like pay for makeup and do all this other stuff, you know? So that on that level, it's kind of nice. Um, you know, I went in without knowing who Amalia Ullman is. Like I knew that she was a name. I knew she was a person. Um, and then only after I, I watched knew the movie, she was a person. I knew she was like a, a person who was like interested in the gallery world. I did walk right into that. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but you know, she was, she was like a person of note. It's just not really my standard belief. And I looked her up afterwards. I was like, well, thank goodness. I didn't know any of this before I watched the movie. Mm. Cause I would have come in on, you know, you start telling me about like Instagram stories and creating a character. And I'm like, ah, no, I don't, you know, so like there is actually an organic relationship to her pre-existing work. I just simply haven't seen it. Um, I think that might be something that might be off-putting to people. It's a quality that you are picking up on in the scene where she, uh, you know, is trying to get on the Skype. But there's two things happening in that scene, right? She's not just trying to get the Wi-Fi. She's also trying to get the right backlighting for herself. Like, yeah. And she's she doesn't have a lot of space to play with here. So I kind of appreciate that. Um, I also thought when I was watching it, I was like, wow, I really like Eric Romero. You know, and I don't mean that in like a snotty way at all, but there was so much of a relationship to the way like filming stuff in cafes and, you know, like what's the cheapest way to get, um, you know, expand everything out, have a big plate glass window that opens out onto the street. 
and I kind of remind, I was like, oh, I do really like that stuff. I should finish watching the rest of his movies that I haven't seen. So actually, thanks to this movie, I'm up through like Full Moon in Paris right now. So I appreciate that. Wow. But I think it's something that I thought about, you know, a lot as we were, as I was looking at this year's selections. Um, questions of influence are inevitable. Um, and I don't think that isolating or highlighting what something is either, you know, on the, on the sliding scale of like pure ripoff to like homage to voice to whatever, like, I think that's totally cool. And in fact, it made me like the movie more on some level because it's very now, it's very of the moment in its own way, but it has a continuity with this kind of post Vermeer, Hong, you know, Martine yeah. Reitman thing. And like a decade ago, there were so many of these movies and I enjoyed pretty much all of them, you know, <laughs> like, and at some point that kind of like, this movie is funny, but also artful thing. Like it's not the dominant mode of festival filmmaking at this moment. There's just not a ton of well-made comedy it, in that circuit. And so I especially yeah. kind of appreciate that aspect of this. I think Hong it is does interpret that... that mode in a very distinct, distinctly contemporary way though. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, there is something, um, like I was saying earlier about about the film that feels very now, despite having these like somewhat more classical or or dated influences. Surprisingly so. I think I mean like they did cite Hong as like an explicit editorial reference point, but you know, you can right. draw the line straight back. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that all, but unlike Romero or Hong, it's like angry too. This movie is pretty angry. And I, Hong, I mean, I mean, Hong movies I felt can be that. pretty, pretty self-lacerating, maybe, but not yeah. angry at like a system, not angry at like Social the world. Angst, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there's a fine line being walked here between um, who is Amalia Ullman and the continuity of that character that I don't understand. And if there there is something a little bit strange about the movie that kind of dips in and out of like engaging with that directly, like in that scene, and then going into these like different kinds of modes, because I think. We haven't brought it up, but the uh, the first date segment places us in an entirely different circle of media hell. Um, and I guess, you know, which is was something that normally makes my skin crawl. But it's, yeah, it's definitely all in there. Well, you have to say what, you have to describe the scene, yeah, no. otherwise. <laughs> uh, boy, she goes on a date with this gentleman at, uh, who calls himself Mozart? Who's Amadeus? Mozart? No, Amadeus. 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 Uh, what? God, what, he, he's working for Michael Kors or something. It comes out. Uh, Is no, it Balenciaga. Uh, it's been a while, but he can't yeah. remember the name. Of, he can't remember the name, and then yeah, remember like, the name for him. Um, that's it. That's a scene in the movie that is actually like very aggressive, like elliptical cut for. Like we should mention that the movie does jolt out of this like super like traditional-ish mm -hmm. register a few times to do disorienting things like that. There's some some weird transitions as well um but i i fear that we're making it sound like the brooklyn comedy from hell if we go i mean it kind of is like not <laughs> totally there's some brooklyn comedy from hell aspects yeah, to it is. but it's some but i i ended up kind of yeah i mean it's it it uh rises above i feel like yeah, if it I, were in english it would feel very much like if the dialogue was in Eng english and yeah. had like brooklyn lingo then it might have been a little insufferable for me. But. I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting point, actually, because I, I was thinking about this with another film uh, in the lineup, Friends and Strangers, that we might right. talk about later. But um, yeah, because uh, I think like in that film and in this one, uh, the tone of it, like the, the fact that it is kind of low key and um, also maybe rooted in this like, uh, you know, anger or, you know, like something that's like a bit more fiery, um, I think is important to the way that it lands. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, what you're saying about the transitions, like that's, that's actually one of my favorite moments, the elliptical cuts in this conversation. Cause I felt like it was cutting through kind of like all of this, like perhaps like annoying banter that you would have to sit through, like between these two people on their first date, like having this like flirty, like weird, uh, uh, game or whatever that emerges in those kinds of movies and it kind of felt like oh we're getting kind of like just kind of snapshots of this and it feels very fluid and fleet and like not at all academic even though I think like maybe trying to describe it it can but um yeah uh that's an interesting point though I think I think it also kind of stands out because um a lot of the movies kind of reading the idea of a scene kind of is done in a master shot more often than not and kind of unfolds in real time and there's a commitment to naturalism and what you're mm-hmm. talking about is kind of the like the thing where you're watching one of the like before movies and you're like, for, you know, for God's sake, it's been an hour. Let's get to Mm. the emotional core of the matter. Um, And it's because it's the only time that it happens in this movie, that information is treated in this way. It does also like give you a nice little jolt there. You know, like it's good to uh, uh, remind people that the whole movie may not be exactly the same throughout. It's good. It's good to keep on their toes for sure. I thought that uh, this movie and you brought up friends and strangers, both kind of are about this, you know, late twenties angst, and a kind of thing well, Clint, happening. Tell us, tell us about what friends and strangers. Well, I just did the. I just did El Planeta. So I think Chloe maybe could take it. Could, could walk us through friends and strangers. Sure. So friends and strangers is a. Uh, it's a comedy from um, Australia, and it's about um, kind of young young people in their twenties who seem uh, pretty well off um, financially, um, at least well enough off to just kind of be in these sort of awkward, strange scenarios with each other um it's very dry um it starts off with uh, this young man uh, ray i believe is his name and he has met uh this young woman alice sort of by chance like it's whenever they try to describe it to other people it sounds like a total like weird accident like they happen to be at the same bar in a city that they don't both live in and kind of started talking and then somehow they would like see each other again again like i don't know it's very kind of like uh uh, I guess like oblique how pretty much everything is described in this movie but they go on this camping trip together um, it seems like they're kind of flirting with each other and might hook up but um, it, it's it, everything that happens just kind of becomes an awkward half interaction and um, it, it's just sort of like I, I think like the tone the tone of it is really hard to describe if you haven't seen it um but that's kind of what makes this movie so special for me um it's just like uh it's about kind of like late 20s fumbling but like not in a way that's like uh trying to point out like how obnoxious these uh characters are because their class or like um how kind of it's really sort of um they seem like like pathetic but it's not like a judgment on them i I don't know if i'm describing this well it's just like uh it's a totally like it's sort of about the absurdity of interaction and just kind of like not knowing where you're going and uh, yeah, getting into loops as I am now trying to describe it. Um, But yeah, I mean, just the feeling of it is really uh, kind of understated and weird and uncomfortable, but also like kind of surreal in the second half too. Um, It's a really interesting movie. I also, this movie was, I did find like, was laughing out loud, you know, watching it by myself, like a sad, sad film credit <laughs> uh, me, me too if it makes you feel less oh, that's good. Next time yeah. I'll text you. i mean i watched a by myself on a monday and i pretty much hit the spot uh the, the part where he um 
curses out a child for having a poor work ethic is pretty is pretty a plus. Um, I, I think what, another way to describe the movie is that it, it, it takes about twenty minutes to figure out what the movie actually is because it begins with this kind of encounter. And then you're like, is this a movie about uh, a failed hookup? You know, like, what is this? And who's the protagonist? You know, like, and then it's, it's like, is it a branching narrative? And eventually we kind of figure out maybe 20, 25 minutes is like, oh, this guy, this guy is who the, what the movie's about. So it's, it's up almost by, it's almost just by like, accident i feel like the movie just sort of I mean, when you look like, back at it it's like oh, it's so tightly structured in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. all of these things yeah. happen i mean essentially it's a like you know it's almost like the the first part that we've described as like a bit of a prologue and then you have the kind of like one crazy day thing i mean essentially we're talking about somebody who's about to have a breakdown and doesn't know it which right. doesn't sound funny but is actually very funny um <laughs> Uh, so James Vaughn, who is the director, I, I guess used to program for a cinematech in Melbourne. Um, and so it is not remotely surprising that he would have like a heavy frame of reference on hand, like the end credits and the citations for all the music and like right. recent BFI restorations. Like he's very, very on top of these things. Um, I mean, the music is I, also very good in it. I the think. music, the music has like the joke of the year and I really don't want to describe it. Um, <laughs> But it, it, it basically involves creating a very particular plot excuse to play some very, very aggressive music for like 15 minutes over a scene that has nothing to do with And it, it does this thing where it creates this tone on top of the tone, but it's all the characters can hear it. And sometimes they try to tune it out and sometimes they respond to it. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty terrific. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's really, it's a, it's a sharp thing. And I don't, I don't want to be, you know, I haven't really kept up with recent Australian cinema. Um, I don't know, but this feels, it felt kind of fresh. And what feels kind of fresh about it is a, is a, is a sense of humor that could be equally described as in the pocket that you guys are describing about age, demographic. Um, but also like, it's kind of Australian, right? Like there's people walking around, like drinking beer at like 3 PM. Like, and there's an elderly neighbor with a beach house. The movie seems very preoccupied with construction and development yeah. in like Melbourne. Um, I know nothing about these issues, but, you know, go to any major city in the States and see who's not frustrated by that. So it feels like a lot of it feels like very kind of weirdly familiar and also just like very specific. And in terms of there being a significant section of the movie that involves a kind of hapless young protagonist having to deal with the neighbor across the way who wants to have a few beers and go around the house. This is a recapitulation of the dude's excellently named for short. You like it. I love it. Um, so this is this is like a whole Vision. Wait, you, and, um, do you, are you saying you love it or that's part of the title? <laughs> the title of his debut short film is You Like It, I Love It. Um, I think that, I, I think that we watch movies like this, sometimes it's kind of hard to remember like how hard it is to make something look this easy. Yeah. You know, like it feels so like yeah, kind of epicless for a while, but the sharpness of the composition is worlds away from what we normally think of as the default language of screen comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful film. And also, yeah, but it does look, it's so effortless. It, se- or it seems to be effortless. It seems to be. It seems to be effortless. Like, and it actually gets funnier as it goes along instead of going of what, you're nor- what you're normally supposed to do is go downhill and have the moment of realization, which does kind of happen, but in a very yeah. nice, very nice kind of way. My favorite joke was when the guy, the older dad says something about like, a hill of beans it amounts to a hill of beans and then he accuses his daughter of having a bean a bean mind i think was <laughs> that, that was yes that's still cracking me up today yeah 
Yeah, it's it's so good. I, I also loved the uh, the sound gag that uh, Vadim was describing. Um, there's also a moment where like you're not sure if um, a painting has changed color. Um, things like that can happen in this. Um, yeah, I mean it. Psychedelic thing happening too, in some of this like yeah. this sense of like reality just kind of becoming like slightly unmoored. And uh, but you know to kind of refer back to what Vadim was talking about like this film also seems really uh like it's coming like you can see the influence of Hong in this movie strongly and Romare but it's like but uh like El Planeta and maybe like more so I think it kind of takes it to a new place and is using it to diff using those narrative lessons and you know from Romare maybe more like these kind of like setups between young people and like um storytelling ideas and taking it to and kind of pushing it into some kind of uh i don't want to say the word like maybe just maybe like psychedelic or like slightly like non-real like non-realistic right. surrealistic maybe yeah Rome. that's interesting like uh because i guess um what we were saying about it being kind of like tightly plotted and um sort of in the same vein as like uh Romare and uh, Hong who are kind of uh, able to set up these sorts of like narrative games or just sort of like, uh, you know, narrative setups with young people. Like uh, it has this way of like kind of uh, seeming to start you off in something like that and then just immediately feeling like it's going off the rails into something that's like you have to like, uh, it's like a nail biter almost. It's right. just like uh, you start to like wonder like what is their conversation at all? What are they even saying to each other? Like, a lot of the humor comes from like, uh, like there's a point where uh, Ray is trying to like make up a word when um, the guy asks him like, what do you want to do with your life essentially? And he he says like, I can't remember what it is. I'm going to ruin the joke, but, but it's just like uh, the absurdity of language. And he, the other guy's just kind of so sharp on him. Like, like, what, what are you saying? That's not even any, and, he, and he's just like forced to try and like define and defend himself. And he just can't. And he's like drunk and not up to it. And like, meanwhile all these other surreal things are happening so it's just very like it's like uh, a job interview too like he's like yeah stressed. yeah <laughs> totally. i have to say it's i like, haven't seen this film and yeah like i can't even picture <laughs> it just sounds so yeah i mean eclectic and wild like i just i can't quickly picture um it's just right. kind of like modulated yeah it seems yeah. to be very it's very controlled but it moves between like different registers and I really right. It like you, it's control. It's very controlled, but it's and it's very precise in the way it does it. But it'll suddenly be like a goofy comedy. It'll suddenly kind of move back into mm. this kind of Romare zone. It'll kind of, you know, it, and uh, yeah, it's just I I really liked it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, not having seen it, I will uh, propose a segue. Uh, you know, <laughs> Interesting use of music and psychedelics kind of takes me to Rock Bottom Riser. Did I do that? Did I do that well? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I followed you. And that's by Fern Silva. And that also played at the Berlinale where I first saw it. And I'm a little mixed on it. I don't know if someone else wants to kind of talk us through it i know some of you are big fans but are you i'll i'll, I'll take i'll take the hit on this yeah. i also i talked to fern 
last week for an interview for like an hour. So this is like fairly. Oh, right. Okay. So Fern Silva has been making experimental short work since 2009. This is his first feature. Um, his short work is uh, elliptical most of the time, would definitely be a word. Um, and it is kind of edited in these kind of more often to be quick or medium length rather than long shots. So to make a feature that um, takes place, so, you know, in like five minute chunks, more or less, is kind of a new thing for him. The movie is, you know, we're assigning an about to it. The movie is about Hawaii um, and it's, um, chooses to focus most many of its segments around the question of building a telescope on Mauna Kea, um, which is a sacred indigenous site that also has been chosen like 15 years ago as like one of the best locations in the world to build this very particular kind of telescope. Uh, and protests in Hawaii have actually successfully forestalled this for like over a decade now, which is, you know, a little bit unprecedented most of the time, you know, whatever's going to happen, mm-hmm. it's going to happen anyway. Um, so the movie kind of spends a good chunk of time on that, allowing voiceovers from the indigenous and scientific perspectives to speak on that. Um, other segments are about either directly or a little more obliquely, um, kind of the things you'd expect, the role of colonialism in settling Hawaii. Um and um, yeah, just in the broadest sense, uh, you know, uh, the title is Rock Bottom Riser. The word rock should be taken very seriously. Um, there's a recurring, I mean, emphasis is understanding it. Like the movie has some very spectacular, like overtly spectacular shots of lava flowing. It opens with what we could describe fairly as a fairly kick-ass opening drone shot of uh, lava. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the appearances of the rock. <laughs> yes. I mean, all of these things are interesting. There's also... Um, <laughs> Who does not appear? In the, wait, does he? He does appear. A brief I clip. On okay. a TV. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I love that scene. And there's <laughs> also um, the, the classroom scene where uh, we are treated to an impassioned discussion of Simon and Garfunkel's uh, I Am a Rock. That is is actually a Christian missionary school, which is why it's like the thematically relevant part, but you might not. And the scene in a vape house at dubstep. That was, that was kind of what my, uh, in my segue was, was hinging. Yeah. I have to say that scene, even among people who I've talked to who don't like the movie, that's the scene that people tend to like, or they're like, this is the scene that's good. It's so good that actually the rest of the movie just can't live up to that. (laughs) But yeah, I am curious. Um, I mean, I, I just for me, I again was like, oh, this is cool. You know, this is fun. Yeah. This looks good. It looks good in a bunch of different ways. More of the segments yeah. hit for me than not. Um, when you kind of start getting into the like, so what's the line of argument? You know, what's the film? What's the perspective of the filmmaker in relation to a subject? I think there are pretty good answers to all those questions, but I would love to hear what kind of questions or problems you have. So first of all, like I should, I want to underline something you said, Vadim, that the movie has like genuinely gorgeous long sequences of just lava flowing through the earth and like the rock faces and the mountains of Hawaii. And I think they're drone shots, right? So you get these like incredible. The first shot is a drone shot. It's from overhead and he didn't actually shoot that. And that's the only digital stuff in the movie. That's 4k. The other stuff is actually him standing rather close with a 16 super 16 camera. It was like really hot. Like you said, the, the, the soles of his shoes were melting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is gorgeous to watch and we'll talk about another film, maybe after this taming the garden. That's also just a very elemental film. And it's about like confronting these, 
natural objects that are so massive and seem bigger than humans and sort of humans trying to harness them in some way. And that's kind of more implicit in this film. But, you know, it's it's basically about these contradictions of like Hawaii is constantly precarious because of this, the volcanoes and the lava that's bubbling, you know, nearby and under it. And then there are these great feats of exploration and, you know, the search for extraterrestrial life and all these sorts of scientific projects being built upon it. And there's, I don't know, the sense of like both human precarity and like human hubris and, but you know what works best is are those scenes. I mean, I was totally transfixed. I saw it on my projector, so I tried to like blow it up a little bit. But this, I mean, man, I I want to see it in, on a big screen, right? Because like just the roiling rivers of of lava, and I love the vape house scene too, mainly because I used to listen to a lot of dubstep in middle school, and it like <laughs> took me back. And I was like, you know what? This music is actually good. And why did I stop listening to it? And that, do you um, want to describe that scene in more detail? Yeah, I mean, it's about it's three dudes who are just like blowing. They're like smoke masters. Circles of smoke. Yeah. Okay. Is well, I don't that know the if that's term? A, no, I don't. I just made that up. But it's like they're masters of um, like. Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah, almost like it's va- very... vaporium, where like um, if if any of the viewers at home have seen a uh, Beach Rats, the Eliza Hitman film, uh, there's a similar scene that's like ten seconds long, where it's like they're trying to blow vape clouds in a vaporium in front of like the the ruler that measures how many feet uh you can do that. But this is like a full like two minute like kind of dubstep montage that's like in and out of the smoke rings and like just with them. And it's very it's very wild and immersive. But anyway, go on. (laughs) Oh, no, I know that's that's a good description. It very like feels choreographed. It isn't. But because of the way the camera is like moving in and out, it feels like a dance. Yeah. So all of this obviously worked for me. But I think like what's best about this movie are its surfaces like the surfaces it captures and I think it should have stuck to that or you know I don't know in some way like given into its like clear enchantment with objects and surfaces in motion I don't think that the threads of like colonialism um are really well fleshed out I mean this is not a particularly like clever critique I have I just think they're underbaked in a way that makes it, first of all, very apparent that the filmmaker is an outsider in this milieu. I mean, I just could, that felt obvious to me in a way that didn't feel self-aware necessarily, you know, it just felt like there wasn't as much intimacy and there was this like a quick collection of various sociopolitical issues and themes that, um, you know, that, that, have been either plaguing Hawaii or are kind of the defining issues of of this place. And so the inclusion of The Rock, and there's a little interview by a filmmaker, a Hawaiian filmmaker, about their feelings on The Rock playing King Kamehameha and some, I don't know, some Disney, I didn't even know this movie was being made, but there's some movie. It just, it's so superficial and sort of unnecessary to have like a little blip of that and then to have a little blip of someone talking about monarchia and the ways in which the telescope construction has increased police presence and then little scenes of someone doing a play that seems to be about missionaries and settler colonialists. I wasn't, you know, it's 
like these little slivers don't actually capture or convey anything. So they feel a little bit like, yeah, just borrowing little bits and creating this, this collage that isn't saying something and also isn't necessarily for me drawing material links between the images of nature and the themes that are being invoked, which are very linked, right? I mean, there is something about like, again, this um, unharnessable natural forces that we're saying and the attempts to, you know, or like the ways in which that has been used or has been made the project of colonial efforts. I don't really see the film bringing those together. So I kind of wished like, well, I, I just wish I could have just like watched and listened uh, to the cool stuff, basically. I mean, I think I think you're on. I think that this focus on surfaces, also the sound design, I, uh, I remember being like very impressive and like the sound of the lava just like grinding towards you. But um, uh, I just I read all, all of these less as like an attempt to make a point about colonialism or say something important than as like other, as you said, like other elements in this collage film of about like what about just kind of an experience of like a very intense experience of Hawaii in this way, like through this, through this film. But isn't that like, I mean, that's kind of, you think like it's if just, that if the is the film is like in fifty five minutes trying to give you an experience of Hawaii. Okay, well, yeah, like, it's not. It's like a travel, yeah, <laughs> tra like a travel brochure. It's definitely not a travel brochure, but I do think it's trying to. I mean, I think this this idea of surfaces, like this interest in surfaces. I mean, I think that those can. What I'm saying more is that like those are elements that can be read as surf on a surface level too, like these mm -hmm. these. Um, kind of like thumbnail sketches of Hawaiian history and like social issues. I think I kind of agree with both of you in different ways. Like there is a way that it's kaleidoscopic in a way that's kind of uh, interesting. We were talking a bit before the podcast about how um, some people have accused it of being like the ultimate stoner movie. Um, and there is this quality in which like each kind of vignette um, sort of like by going kind of quickly into something gets you kind of your mind spiraling in that direction and then you're moving on and it's like, whoa, there's lava. And then you're in the vape, you know, that kind of experience like is happening all the time. about aliens. Like, doesn't, exactly. Doesn't yeah. 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 Or just like our inability to understand the cosmos and all of this. Um, right. But like there is sometimes that can really work. Like uh, I think my favorite part of the film actually is um, the, so it, it connects to what we were talking about with the rock. Um, he's filming from inside of a hotel room, I think, and the rock is being interviewed on a TV about being in this film. And then it cuts to another angle of the hotel room and it's another TV and it's like a segment from like planet earth or something of, I think <clears throat> like Hawaii or waterfalls or some sort of like island landscape. And then it cuts to like closed curtains inside the hotel room. And then it moves on. And I was like, wow, that's kind of a really elegant way of talking about like the gaze of a tourist or someone who like isn't really like from this place, like trying to get a sense of it through like cultural signifiers on screen, but still kind of being enclosed in this room. But I kind of like I wish that like after I saw that, I wished that kind of more of the different elements had that sort of like poetry to it or like, um, you know, I mean, I, I at other points I was left kind of wanting more in terms of like how these themes were developed and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, ultimately I'm glad I, I watched it and I think, uh, yeah, the sound design's amazing. And, you know, now that I know his shoes were melting off, that's a whole nother level. 
I think it's this kind of touristic element that that I'm resistant to, but it's definitely one that I, like I say, I recommend people watch on, you know, as big a screen as they can access right now uh, with, you know, as good sound. And I do want to, you know, kind of take this opportunity to uh, go over to Taming the Garden, which most of you have seen, right? Um, and I love that one. I mean, that turned out to be one of the favorite things I saw. And um, Vadim, did you... Did you like that one? Okay, so I'm definitely interested in knowing why you didn't because, um, you know, it seems like these are kind of related films, but but I can start off with the good stuff if you want. Please. <laughs> First of all, like, it's just a crazy good subject. You know, it's just like an incredibly fascinating subject. It's, um, there's this, the a former Georgian prime minister of the country of Georgia, uh, who is a billionaire who's obsessed with trees and with collecting trees. And he has this, I guess, project where he finds like large ancient and rare trees and has them uprooted and shipped over the Black Sea or, you know, I mean, shipped, I mean, these uh, uprooted like completely whole, right? Like not chopped up in any way, completely Whole so that they can be replanted in this privately owned park that's next to his summer house, this giant park. And so he just ferries trees from various, uh, you know, parts of Georgia and, you know, and has them, yeah, just shipped over and so, planted here. I would say the film doesn't explain any of that. Just to. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I guess I did read the description before going in. So now I can't like quite tell what's in <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, the characters are, the people in the film talk a lot about, and they refer to him by name, and they talk mm -hmm. about his obsession with trees. Um, but it doesn't have, like, exposition. It just kind of takes you to these sites where construction or, I don't know what you would call them, just laborers are, are you know, doing this. They're, like, digging up these trees. They're, like, figuring out, you know, ways to get them on these, like, giant trolleys. And then the like best shots in the film, these trees being carried like upright on ships or like, I guess, guys, I guess, giant heavy duty barges across the Black Sea. I mean, it's such a sensual and strange sight. I, I always, I don't know, there's something about, like I was saying earlier, seeing these like huge natural objects that should not be movable, but, you know, it just feels like wrong and transgressive and therefore thrilling which i mean i know that sounds kind of bad but it's it's really thrilling to watch but i think there's that beauty part of it so there's like gorgeous images of trees being felled and moved and shaking in the wind it also does some excellent things with sound and you know uh, moments where there's like fog or smoke moving in front of the trees but also a lot of the film is actually just capturing the labor around this and the conversations of the communities who, who uh, you know, of the communities from where these trees are being uprooted. And there's a lot of financial transactions and bargains going around. You know, he basically, this guy, 
goes and buys up these trees in return he is building roads so that the trees can be transported or offering a lot of money and a lot of these families or communities need the money but they also have deep emotional connections to the trees i mean you know you've scenes of grandparents talking about how their grandchildren used to play under the tree and they grew up under the tree and you see people crying like people gather to watch this spectacle of uprootment and you know there are people who are like super excited by the industrial like you know mechanism of it all there are people who are having like really emotional responses and i don't know i think there's a way in which a doc like this could be about oh look at this random rich guy and his weird hobby and the fact that it chooses to focus on labor and community was very striking for me combined with just the beauty of the some, some of the images it captures you know i think yeah it never it's never trying too hard to force symbolism although this obviously this all of this is like you know just waiting for some kind of i don't know i feel like a paper you know to be written there's just it, it there's so much going on socially culturally thematically um but like she doesn't the director to be written yeah yeah um but none of it seems forced and at the same time it's not like superficial it's not just like i'm just going to you know capture this weird thing and how it looks on the camera it's it's going yeah looking at it a little more structurally which which i really liked but what do your turn now oh great <laughs> i've just been sharpening his knife <laughs> i uh, i i thought there, taking notes <laughs> i i thought there was a unintentional uh meta joke in there i feel like 20 years i've been watching uh you know i've, I've been calling it arboreal cinema you know like i'd be half hog and like <laughs> post um uh lisandro alonzo like let's let's go walk through the forest you know like there's been a ton of that stuff so the idea of somebody who loves it so much that they're actually just going to buy a bunch of trees and build it themselves is actually a pretty funny idea for a movie although obviously that's not what's going on here you're listening to the film comment podcast this episode is brought to you by mubi a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully hand-picked. From new directors to award winners, beautiful, interesting, incredible movies. There's always something new to discover. This week, I'm excited to check out the Swedish adaptations of Stig Larsson's Millennium series. Back in 2009, these films broke box office records with their transgressive play with genre conventions. and they shot Numi Rapace to international fame. I'm looking forward to checking out Dreaming of Happiness, a Zhang Lu double bill. The South Korean filmmaker's movies traverse the universal feeling of dislocation while remaining joyful comedies. If you'd like to check out these films too, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com/filmcomment. That's m u b i.com/filmcomment for a whole month of great cinema for free. The shots that you're talking about and I'm so not immune to the appeal of like giganticists stuff like that. And those are the and I was talking to a friend of mine I was like there's half a dozen good shots in the movie and he was like wrong. There's one good shot. She just does it multiple times. And I was like, well, okay, but you know, one's at night and they're from different positions and sometimes it's actually on the moving thing, but I get what you're saying. It is kind of the same effect every time. Um, um, no, there's different things know. that she. I don't think there's only one. I, I think it was I, a very I, Suez Canal like shot of a tiny crane, like 
pushing well, yeah, up that's, against that's, that was the key image that they used for Sundance because they were like that's the shot we've got to have it um I don't know I do think they're actually kind of meaningfully different but I think they're all built around the same kind of visual idea which is mm-hmm. kind of to be visually imposing which I'm here for I'm absolutely here for that but the rest of the movie it's you're you're describing a movie which I see architecturally and its layout and I, like I understand that this is what the movie is doing um I understand that because in the scenes people are often quite clear about what they're talking about um I found myself actually thinking while you were talking and setting it up is just like normally I'm all for um uh no exposition confuse everybody make them go home confused I don't care um I do actually think it changes the valence of the movie a little bit if you understand that this isn't just some random rich person who is has the ability to exercise their whims because that becomes clear at a certain point throughout the movie I do think it's a little bit different if it's the former prime minister and if that person is has like a kind of complicated political history and I'd love to say that this that means that the movie is respecting um the primacy of uh the viewing experience for georgian viewers and inviting everybody else to do their own homework on their own time i don't even know that that's true i mean how many people in georgia are going to go see this that's way over my payload but i just there is something kind of half baked about the movie's relationship to power and the fact that it's dealing with this specific person i mean i think even when i was getting the initial press releases it was a little bit cagey about who this person is and i think inviting you to think in terms that were not actually terribly politically specific you know like So who is this person in relationship to their former power and current power? How does that operate to people who don't have political pull? Um how are people's feelings about this complicated by their feelings about what he did as in the time when he was prime minister? Um that stuff's out there. But what I actually thought is like you know this there this is another kind of classic filmmaking, you know, where where you find your frame and you understand that you're waiting for the beautiful moment to unfold in front of it you know which is a kind of non-fiction best of both worlds like we can have shot composition we can also have the delight of like the unexpected and i just would often sit there and like just nothing happened you know you just kind of it's like they'd have a conversation and it wouldn't be very interesting or somebody would walk across a landscape and it wouldn't be very interesting clearly like, not a man I, who appreciates trees I mean, I like, um, I like, I like um, their conversations. There's a grandma who says, I'm going to get my uh, stick made of acacia wood and I'm going to bash their heads in if they don't uh, pay the cash that they I mean, promised you. I mean, when you, okay. I mean, I actually thought, I don't know if they changed the subtitles since I watched it, but I actually did laugh really hard because the subtitles are, um, they bear a, let's say, glancing relationship or an evident relationship to what's being spoken, but it's not a one-to-one translation. Um at one point one of the subtitles read being stupid is for the whole life i think what it meant to say is something like they've been stupid their whole lives but i was like is it kind of credo from dumb and dumber the the version i saw said um you're an idiot for your whole, uh yeah being an idiot is for the, is for your whole life oh so now i have this like phantom memory of like beautiful mistranslations <laughs> anymore but um i'm glad that was upgraded it felt like um like somebody was running a very, you know a very good playbook a, a playbook where you make a lot of good decisions about where to be and when to be there um and where to put the camera and then it just doesn't nothing and then it doesn't you know like there's just it's just like it's i don't know you well, put your foot I mean, down and the stairs out there i i kind of feel like the, the, the what's there though is like images of trees and oh. if you like and so like if that if you don't respond to images of of trees then perhaps there's nothing there I don't know. I mean I actually like I mean I was kind of joking about the Royal Cinema thing but I'm also not. There were a ton of these but I was always like I I like those movies but it always comes yeah, down yeah. to like framing choice. Yeah, um I mean, this, this movie actually like... is the opposite, right? It's like the d- uprooting of trees 
it's like it's a lot of its shots are actually rooted in like village experiences or like stuff like that. It only brings the trees together at the end. Yeah. It looks kind of like almost like you're looking at it through a computer screen or something. There's like this weird kind of shimmer on top of it that's kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering, that's what I was like, was that fog or smoke or a digital? It's, it looks like there's mist coming off of those misters, but then it looks like she did something to it. I don't know what it is. It's kind of cool. That, that I would actually like to know the answer to. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I thought there was something there, you know, I thought something happened. And I think <laughs> there's, there's a, like Clint is saying, there might be something just more fundamental there you know with movies like these it give it doesn't give you a lot and so if what it gives you is something that latches on in any way to your emotion you know like your emotional um or sensorial viewing experience sometimes sometimes that can be enough for me this was like more than enough um and yeah. and i really yeah. did respond a lot to people watching their trees being taken i don't know there was something very for me striking and moving about that um and almost felt like i i just kept thinking have i experienced or witnessed something like this as a child i didn't i mean i grew up in a city but i kept feeling like it was taking me back to some childhood memory of of communal um loss or bereavement of some kind of communal object um and that's that's what really worked its charm on me. In addition to just uh, pretty trees, and I, you know, and I think the lack of specificity about the about the political context and stuff kind of plays into that too. And it makes it works like a folk tale to me, anyway. It did hmm. about like this shadowy, like you know, rich guy who shows up with a dog. He's described like popping out of his Rolls Royce with his little dog running around and like choosing a tree, and then just come and getting back in the car and and then you know everybody gets to work digging up the tree um but you know it's also kind of obviously allegorical and it's like political allegory and i think that it works that way as as a political allegory um especially and especially at the end when you see these beautiful trees that have grown you know for centuries and like fit into where they fit into the earth where they were um where they first grew up where they were first born and then they're moved into this basically like mini golf course and like they're all kind of placed next to each other in this like extremely manicured like rolling hills yeah. and you see all these guys mowing the lawns and stuff and um yeah i mean it's i don't doesn't need to be belabored but uh treating trees treating the trees like kind of like human kind of like human characters i found to be kind of moving and uh and also there's like these incredible shots that are like straight out of uh or one particular shot that i remember which is like something from um close encounters with the tree like looming over like mm. right in the middle of the night for some reason they decided to move them in the middle of the night this gives us I an do, opportunity though yeah. we're talking about trees we're talking about watering trees there's another movie uh wood and water no and no this is this is how we're gonna do it we talked about fire trees now we go to wood and water <laughs> okay okay the elements all of them wood and water is a film uh a german film by uh the filmmaker's name is jonas bach uh chloe do you want to did you you like this one right sure yeah i, I did i really loved it um 
So um, it's about a character played by the filmmaker's mother who um, she's just retired from her job at the church and um, she lives in um, a very rural region of Germany and her kids are all grown. And um, she decides of the, of the festival is filmmakers and mothers, movie starring filmmakers. mothers. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Um, And in both of the cases that I have seen, they they were both really wonderful actors. So that's great. Yeah. Um, Something there. Yeah. Um, so it, uh, in this film, um, this mother, she she doesn't have a name. I, I realized um, it's a very kind of immersive, kind of sensory driven movie. And then when I got to the credits, I realized, oh, everyone doesn't have a name. So that's interesting. But anyway, so the mother um, decides to go to Hong Kong to try and find her son who she hasn't seen for several years. He lives and works in Hong Kong. Um, and can't easily sort of leave because the uh, the protests are going on. Um, and uh, so she uh, decides to go there and it's about her sort of like being in the stage of her life, kind of confronting um, her solitude and trying to figure out sort of like who she is and how she's going to interact with the world, um, but also in a totally new environment and kind of meeting people in these small sort of chance encounter ways um, there's an incredible sequence um, that animates her kind of moving from uh, Germany to China. Um, it starts kind of with a close-up of, of or a shot of trees again, back to trees. Um, and then it goes into this like tunnel and you watch the lights and then you kind of, the lights change and then you emerge in the cityscape of Hong Kong and the sound design sort of transitions very subtly through this. Um, the score also features a lot of Brian Eno. It's very kind of in that sort of, uh, I hesitate to say like ASMR cinema vein because I think that cheapens it, but um, it's very sort of like immersive. It's and- the first thing I <laughs> learned about the movie because all the press releases had Brian Eno in the subject line. I was like, what oh, really? Water with music wow. by Brian Eno. <laughs> Brian and I was like, <laughs> wood and water. Yeah, oh right. man, I didn't realize I was replicating press release experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the yeah, the thing that stood out to me more was sort of the ambient sound design, even though it's like, oh, this is Brian Eno, yes. Um, but but it's really sort of like uh, thoughtfully and kind of impactfully done. Like, I feel like there's a way that like the contrast between like a rural environment and, and like a, an urban environment can be really kind of stereotypical, but it's sort of like, um, I don't know, it just kind of gives you a sense of like what it is to like sort of be alive and around people or not in both spaces. Um, and then also that kind of takes on kind of a psychological dimension with um, a dream sequence later in the film. But um, yeah, I found it um, really remarkably intimate and character driven. And um, I, I really enjoyed living in that world for 70 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I, I thought it was a, a really beautiful film. Um, the Brian Ito score was maybe like kind of intrusive in a way, mm-hmm. um, at times, <laughs> like just because it was like the, it would swell up, but that was maybe my least favorite aspect of it. But um, it, it was, it was, it worked. Um, I have to admit though that I also thought it was a documentary for maybe this, I shouldn't admit this, but I thought I was watching a documentary for like the first five, oh, 10 minutes. And, and yeah, and, and I thought about that later. Like I was like, wait a minute, this is not a documentary. And uh, I think that speaks to like the the non-professional actor, like just how good these non-professional actors, this woman, the the mother is. She's she's really, really great in this. Um, and also just the way that the the way that the filmmakers kind of um, 
uh, portray her life and kind of get in, get into her life in that way. Um, I thought that was really well done. Um, and again, this is another movie where the political context kind of looms in the background throughout. Um, this one, uh, the, the, the lead character sort of is able to um, move outside of that in a way or find a, find a way to kind of to some kind to some kind of um, safety, I guess, maybe. I'm not sure what happens at the end, but it, it's, it's kind of, it's ambiguous, but I think she kind of, it's, it somehow combines that sociopolitical global context with like this person's very, very personal um, familial problem that she's kind of trying to solve with her son. Um, and it does it in a way that's not heavy handed and it does, and, um, yeah, I really liked it. I know Vadim, you had some thoughts too. Yeah. So this is a, again, it's, it's fun that this is a kind of consensus pick. I didn't hear about it when it played at Berlin. I didn't know who this director was. So this is fun. Uh, a friend basically just watched the trailer and I was like, that looks cool. I was like, okay, good enough. Um, so it's, it's again, you weren't. You didn't get a PR release that was like Ryan Eno's <laughs> Wood and Water. Yeah. So I mean, the the Eno element um, is what I call the drone of memory, right? And uh, mm-hmm. also also used in this movie to signal where the act breaks are, which is how I, I would prefer that that not happen. Um, on the other hand, if you're going to do the drone of memory, uh, best to go to the source, right? Let's yeah. just get the Eno, not some knockoff, um, and we'll all live. It's a, it's a very small portion of the movie. But I think, you know, it's the first 20 minutes of the movie um, have the potential for, I don't know, ed- Scandinavian adjacent gloom. You know, there's mm-hmm. crucifixes. This person's just retired. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a sense of futility, of uselessness, of obsolescence. And, um, You're making it sound a little passing. bit more metal than maybe it been. Yeah. But then, like, but then a curious thing happens. It's the shot that Chloe talked about, which is terrific. Um, it's a real kind of event shot that if you just kind of cut it out showed it you know in an experimental best as a standalone unit people would be like cool that's good um we should also mention that the movie is shot on 16 millimeter and the Mm -hmm. transfer looks like it thank goodness um but what it becomes kind of unexpectedly is one of my favorite subgenres which is somebody goes somewhere and they have to go like, t- and they just talk to a bunch of people and everybody has to talk in uh, the lingua franca of choice, which is English in this case, which is always a great leveler because it makes everybody equally awkward. It's kind of inherently funny, even though there's nothing necessarily, you know, overtly funny about it. And everyone in the movie that she encounters is just like a really nice person, you know? <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Like there's, and, and so you start to get to a point where she arrives in Hong Kong aware, of course, that the protests are happening. It's come up in discussion at dinner beforehand. Um, but it's just one thing to know that and another thing to be walking down the street trying to get some noodles and all of a sudden you're like, oh boy, like there's a big thing happening. Uh, there's some, uh, there's, there's a kind of interesting moment in the movie where it, it is, it is a, a decision could be made by her about whether or not to actively engage with this or not. and it just kind of lets it be there, but it's an, it's an interesting thing because, you know, it's, I, I really have no idea if there was an idea for a movie that was just like, this person goes to Hong Kong and then 
by the time they were doing it, they were like, well, now we have a different movie because these protests are here. Like, what are you going to do? Not film the protests? That's just not a tenable position. I think it would have worked either way um, because I think a lot of the primary appeal of it is these kinds of encounters, you know, which are, are very um, benevolent on all sides. Um, you were with the touristic gaze thing was coming up again. And I'm wondering for you, of course, you know, like, so when we're talking about touristic gaze, this is, uh, this is somewhere in the middle, right? The director has actually lived in Hong Kong for a while, but he's German. The film is anchored in the perspective of a tourist. The tourist at no time pretends to have any particular insight on the situation. The film sits at a kind of different a perspective somewhere in between. There's a lot of kind of shots of architecture grounding it in. You can feel like these are particular neighborhoods, even if I don't know what they are. But it starts and begins in Germany. So I'm just wondering how that aspect of it plays. Well, this is embarrassing because I haven't seen the film. Ah, okay. <laughs> this means um, want to do a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, well, okay, but the touristic case thing in general, it does kind of open up that can of worms. It's like, how, does, how do you engage with that? Because you had mentioned earlier, you felt like in Rock Bottom Riser that the movie's not self-aware of its status as a touristic object. I think, I mean... You know, not to go off on a whole thing right now, because I feel like this is a big topic. And as I said, I have not seen this particular film. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I personally am always interested in, is there a possibility to do, is there the possibility to depict a cross-cultural encounter that doesn't feel touristic or exploitative? I do think that there's a tendency to like quickly paint these kinds of images one way or the other. And, you know, and so the way you're describing it makes, I mean, makes me really curious to see it. Um, what doesn't work for me in something like the Fern Silva movie is, I mean, this is a very simplistic answer, but you're not aware of the director's presence really. Um, and you're not aware of the presence of a tourist as a character who is experiencing this. The position of the tourist is displaced onto the camera and it recedes in a way that you're just invited into the space as opposed to you're actually looking at a tourist look at the space. And obviously Wood and Water sounds very different. It's also a fiction film, but it seems like you're witnessing her having encounters as opposed to the film facilitating an encounter for you. And it's the latter, which to me risks being, you know, ethnographic in that um, superficial way. But again, this is sight and scene. Right. Wooden Water does not really present Hong Kong in a way that is exoticizes it in any way. Like, I, th I, think, I think it's always kind of a risky proposition to, uh, for, for the super obvious reasons to like formalize, to, to use as a formal element, like street protests. But I like that, which this movie definitely does that. Like the, the protesters are treated on some level as a diagonal crossing the frame. Um, I This has been on my mind. It's too big a topic for the, what we're doing in this podcast, but I feel like this is going to keep coming up because, you know, um, Taming the Garden is a Georgian film made by a Georgian filmmaker. Um, I'm just watching some Visions to Real stuff right now. Um, I am seeing an inordinate number of documentaries made by like Danish people about Jordan or whatever. And every single time I'm like, so who are you? You know, and I don't even mean it maliciously, but it's like, who are you? 
And what weird forces of your academic course of study and financing led us to this moment where you're here and you're giving like a default on the ground perspective. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else in this year. Which locations and areas are the hot buzz ones for documentary festivals? You know, I mean, like. <laughs> I, I have some thoughts about that, but we'll steer clear of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can we can reconvene for a, for a different podcast. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, yeah wooded water exceptionally pleasant. Great... Yeah. <laughs> exceptionally so. pleasant. It's pleasant. Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely. Of course. <laughs> um, I think maybe we're just about reaching the end of our time together here. Um, yeah. But uh, we wanted to do some kind of like. If anybody wants to shout out quickly something that we didn't have time to talk about more at length, I know that uh, I know that you both had some favorites that maybe we didn't get to talk about. So, um, Chloe, do you want to do you have anything that you want to talk about? Sure. Um, I'd love to shout out uh, Moon 66 Questions because it has an amazing lead performance from uh, Sophia Kokali. I believe uh, Jacqueline Lonsu is the name of the director, um, but it's about... Um, a young woman who um, reconnects with her estranged father um, when he comes down with, um, he's an autoimmune disease that causes him to lose um, the ability to walk and speak. And she becomes his uh, caregiver essentially. And, um, but it's very um, like, instead of um, falling back on narrative cliches, it's very rooted in a kind of like a uh, movement and like their kind of unspoken emotional relationship and kind of all the stuff that like hasn't really come to the surface before, but like them sort of like processing it individually and like trying to figure out what their relationship is now through this very specific um, circumstance. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, she's wonderful in it and a revelation and um, yeah, I would recommend it. Uh, yeah, I, Sophia Kakali, uh, I, the movie, the movie I have a little ambivalent about it and, but she's going to be a huge, huge, I'm so yeah. not a performance driven person. I don't know how to talk about acting. Um, she's going to be in a Bond movie or an MI movie or a Nolan movie or all three in like the next seven years. Like there's just like, she will like give some great performances and then take those paychecks. It's going to be great. I'm going to love it. Um, I, it wanted, here, folks. I really yeah. hope you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like it's kind of like watching Leia say do for the first time. It's like, oh boy. Uh, you know, yeah, that's a good comparison. Um, or like maybe somebody like Akaliki Papalia. Anyway, um, Short Vacation, which is the Korean film. Uh, whoever whoever uh, glommed on that, I really appreciate it. It, does, it has no trade reviews, um, and it is uh, joins the long lineage of uh, graduate projects that turned out to be good enough to join the real world. You know, everything from Killer of Sheep to is The Forest for the Trees, to Jordan Lord's recent shared resources. This is one of those. Um, it is, uh, again, pleasant. Uh, 79 minutes with uh, some middle school Korean girls. It's uh, spring vacation or spring break or summer vacation. I wasn't quite clear on that point, I have to admit. Uh, They're given some disposable 35 millimeter cameras and to, told to go out to um, capture the end of the world. Um, a very open-ended prompt. Uh, the movie was developed kind of the way that it feels like it was developed. Like there's these four girls, they're, they're real. They're kind of doing their thing within each scene. It is a classical master shot. They're real? Yeah, I, I see that my I'm lexical problems my... are going to be the endless source of grief to me. Um, their, their trajectories, let me use my language with creator position. Their trajectories dialogue 
and interrelationships were not sculpted at first primarily by the writers and directors of the film. In fact, they were based closer to nonfiction reality than they were to the traditional sculpted constraints of fiction filmmaking. So I hope that clear that up a little bit. Um, it's a chill movie. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of these kinds of movies um, where it's just like nothing happens, but everything does. And I kind of hate that because it's such a cliche. Um, it's kind of true that nothing happens in the movie for a long time. But you do kind of arrive at a scene where they say very poignant things. And it's actually poignant not because of what they're saying, because you've heard this in like a billion, you know, Koreeda or Ozu movies. It's because they're 12. The amount of regret that they're expect, you know, articulating about things that they haven't felt yet is actually kind of, it kind of collapses the gap in a very nice way. And if people, I think, you know, for anyone who's concerned or often agitated about how teenagers or preteens are represented on screen condescendingly or um, horrifically or whatever, like this is an excellent um, culturally specific uh, correction to that. I didn't get a chance to see that, but uh, I want to, I want to check it out. I, I definitely second that recommendation it's um it's so wholesome not in a cloying way though i mean i because they get they it's they're like on this day trip and they get lost and there's like a bit of menace i couldn't shake off while watching it as you know someone who's been a young woman or a young girl in this case and you know um yeah no it's um i i definitely encourage people to watch it too and it was a total surprise discovery for me as well my quick rec would be azor i hope i'm saying that right um it's an argentinian film uh by andreas fontanas and it's co-written by mariano linas of la flor fame and again like i don't know it's such a hyper specific film it's set in 1980s in argentina and it follows a swiss private banker who arrives in buenos aires because his partner who used to like work that region suddenly has disappeared and obviously you know the uh, military junta has sort of risen and there's this political you know regime change and violence and a lot of um hush hush violence you know people are getting disappeared and uh, the powerful are trying desperately to like hold on to their wealth and power and sort of are complicit, but want to keep up, you know, certain kinds of appearances. Um, so he's, he arrives in this milieu with his wife and basically has to both figure out what happened to his partner because no one knows where he is and why he left. And um, convince all his partner's previous clients to like, transition their accounts to him and like let him take over the business and he's sort of like learning the kind you know the dirty money I mean it's already the money is already dirty in these situations but like how much dirtier it's become in this particular political situation um there's something about it that's like prestige period tv like but in an intentional way you know and that, that's so the connection with Mariano Linas also seems to play into that it's very plotty it's very talky it's just um very glossy also and the characters I don't know there's like this constant sense of like bubbling menace and secrecy but it just captures that world of wealth so well of like the violence that's always off the frame uh of the dark stuff that's always swept you know beneath the beds or whatever um and and everyone's speaking and speaking in a kind of double speak you know there's this like just code language of incredibly 
rich people who are able to do hor- like horrible evil things without ever saying the thing and like being able to speak around it and talking in a particular jargon of finance you know the finance world and um and wealth management so yeah i i it was really engrossing and um especially after you know i i liked all these other movies we've been talking about but to watch something that's like really plotty and you know twisty was um was really fun cool Clint, yeah you want to um, finish so, it off yeah i'll keep it brief and i'm going to shout out the uh the 50th anniversary uh kind of retrospective screenings that have been going on i think they're free on the film at lincoln center um website but uh i watched uh duvita by money call um from 1973 and i'd never seen it before and uh it really just kind of totally melted my brain and i've never seen a movie like it and um i struggle to describe it but it's uh it's it's uh it tells it's a, it's based on a rajasthani folk tale and it tells like a story. It's a very basic story. It tells us uh, newlyweds are returning from their wedding. And um, the husband is a merchant and says that at, as soon as they arrive back at his mansion, he says that he has to go off for set for five years to, to do like, you know, brisk trade and in, in the capital or something and must leave his bride. And there's no time for, you know, any of the funny business. And so he heads off and, and she is like, pretty upset she's real bummed but on the way to to the mansion they had in, they pat they crossed paths with a ghost who, imme- who had immediately fallen in love with her and he sees this as his the ghost sees this as an opportunity to kind of um you know fall you know meet up with the with this with this young bride and so the ghost uh, assumes the form of the husband and like and takes his place and kind of makes up some kind of bogus story about how he he was going to to do business and then he kind of he met an old man who told him that if he went back home to his wife he would get five coins every morning so but but none of this really is like the story goes on and it, and it and it's very much just a very simple folktale than the narrative but the film is every single shot is I mean, it says, it sounds kind of, you know, I don't want to say it sounds, it's cliche to say it, but every single shot is just like incredibly beautiful and just saturated with light and different tonalities and different, and he just, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, I'm watching it on a computer and I'm saying this, if you have an opportunity to see this in a theater, I think that uh, it should not be passed up. And at the same, the editing is also really fascinating there's these short shots that suddenly fade into like basically the same shot. And with, it'll be like a shot of a tree. I'm sure Vadim will, will enjoy this. Mm. And then it'll fade into another shot of a tree. <laughs> and, uh, but it seems to be to, to no end, but it creates this mood of, of kind of magic and um, where these things are possible and where these, this story is possible of this ghost. Um, and each really, I kept thinking of, uh, again, this is, sounds incredibly pretentious, but it just, it really, this movie reminded me of like Vermeer more than anything else in that, like it's command of light 
and just like understanding of light was just something I hadn't really seen before. Um, that is, I realized that the, I'm just raving about this movie, but it, I really enjoyed it and encourage people to see it. Me too. I I mean, it was a big blind spot for me. And so I used this retrospective screening to catch up with it. It blew my mind. I mean, I don't, I feel like I will also just rave if I start talking about it. But yeah, I mean, I think we I were just, texting about it and I was just like, yeah. like what is the, what is this? Um, it was unlike anything I'd seen. And I do, yeah, I, I just want to say it really is painterly, which is such an overused and misused adjective that it might sound bad, like to, to keep describing the film as such, but it's, it's every shot is alive, you know, it's not like this cold uh, sense of beauty. Cold, I mean, it's dead very, movie, like all the other movies. <laughs> very textual. Um, but yeah, definitely recommend that. Well, thanks for everyone who listened. And this recording will be uh, available on the Film Comment podcast on Tuesday. So if you haven't already, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. It's available basically everywhere. Um, and yeah, stay tuned and keep keep uh, listening to our episodes and also stay, stay tuned for our soon coming letter. We will have more information about that later this week, including a launch date and, you know, what's coming up there. So, yeah, just get excited for a film comment. And thank you so much, Chloe and Vadim, for humoring us once again. And yeah, this was this was just I, I think we just need to do some kind of regular tradition with this because I, I had so much fun. Thank you. The feeling is definitely mutual. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for having us, both of us. Thanks, guys. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Mubi and made possible by our subscribers and by the members and patrons of Film at Lincoln Center. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.